0: What the heck is empathetic skepticism? Let's find out together on The Cozy Robot Show. The Cozy Robot Show Hey, Cozy Robots! I'm Mike McCarg, and this is The Cozy Robot Show. Uh, Welcome to everybody viewing live. I see your comments all across Facebook and YouTube and Periscope. I don't know if I've seen one in from Twitch yet, but We should see one soon. Uh, It's good to see everybody. For those of you catching the show on demand later on Instagram TV or Facebook or YouTube or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, welcome. Uh, If you are joining us live, make sure you write out any questions that you have in the comments. We will answer questions live at the end of the program. So uh, you Get to have your voice heard, and we talk about what you want to talk about on this program. And of course, after the show, as always, join us on Discord for the after party. Tonight, we'll be playing the quiz party game, Quiplash. So that should be really fun. If you don't know how to join us on Discord or what Discord is, just go to CozyRobots.com, and you can find out how to become a cozy robot and join our community uh we hang out all week and on monday nights we have an after party uh it's like the internet without all the meanness basically (laughs) it's a lot of a lot of social learning uh, a lot of socializing and uh no meanness oh there come some comments from twitch hello everybody a lot of comments tonight wow a lot of live viewers so it's good to see everybody so uh we have got quite the program uh planned for you tonight and um Well, I'd like to start with a little story, if that's all right. Uh, We're kind of uh, moving into a holiday week, so I hope you all are staying safely at home, but enjoying uh, some kind of a break from your regular routine. And um, that's kind of how this episode came into being. Uh, Victory Palmazano is the show's uh, producer. Um, Victory kind of runs everything. I'd be, We could call Victory the showrunner, I think, without any uh, exaggeration. And Victory was having a conversation with a dear friend of mine, Corey Pig. Corey is uh, a close friend and been very involved in all the work I've done for years. Helped out with uh, things we did with the liturgists, uh, has helped out a lot with Science Mike stuff, and is just a brilliant wonderful human being and they were connecting and Corey was commenting about how great this show looks which (laughs) i loved hearing that because we have worked hard on the production quality of this program uh so that was a great piece of feedback and then Corey asked victory but what is this show about i don't get it i mean what is a cozy robot (laughs) so um we thought maybe it'd be a good week to kind of talk about what this program is about. And you might think, what, a meta show? I don't want to hear a show about this show. Um, I promise this is going to be uh, a great episode of the program. It's going to be all about what we're here to do and will stand on its own as an engaging experience, I'm sure. Uh, But if we think about the term Cozy Robot it is kind of a contradiction in terms. If we think of robots, what do we think of? We think of like industrial robots, building things in factories. We might think of androids in uh, fictional settings, which typically aren't described as cozy. Um, But I am an adult with autism. I have autism spectrum disorder, diagnosed and everything. And um, for most of my life, people have described me as robotic. I have really rapid recall of facts and figures and statistics. I am very analytical. Uh, I value logical reasoning. And a lot of people describe many people who have autism as being robotic. And in fact, there's kind of a popular conception about autistic people that we don't have feelings at all or are very robotic. But the fact is, I have very strong feelings and I have an overwhelming sense of empathy for people. I mean, truly overwhelming at times. And so, you know, uh, I don't know if it was a joke or not. Victory once described me in a meeting as a cozy robot. (laughs) That actually became the working title of a a show that we started thinking about how we could make, and then we got hit with a pandemic. But this, this match between, you know, cozy and robot feelings and facts, empathy and analysis, it seems like a thread we don't often get to pull in popular media or culture. And when we started to make this program, Oh, wow, AJ, what a wonderful statement. Uh, my dear friend AJ says, a lot of non-binary people relate strongly to robots as well because they are generally not gendered. What a, what a wonderful thing to make space for this evening. So we didn't start making a show because we wanted to be on YouTube or make viral videos. Um, we're not broadcasting on multiple platforms. Uh, to follow trends, and certainly not because I want to be famous and get attention, (laughs) as I really don't like either of those things. The people behind this program, and there is a team of people behind this program, they want to invite you on a journey. And what's that journey about? The Cozy Robot Show is here to invite you to understand yourself and to understand your own feelings. It's here to invite you on a journey about understanding other people and why other people do the things that they do, even when it confuses you or frustrates you, or maybe even frightens you. If there's anything we could say about this particular moment in history, it's that our ability to understand why other people think and act and feel the way they do is strained. We wanna invite you on a journey also of learning to know what is true and trustworthy in our world. It seems like our media environment has never been more confusing or more deceptive. And we ultimately want to talk about how to make all of these things work together so that we can partner with each other to make the kind of world that we'd all like to live in. A world where every person's dignity and worth are honored where all life is valued and our species takes its place along all the other life on this planet in a sustainable future for everyone. Because we never forget, or at least we try to never forget as we make this program and live our lives, that our world is something we're all making together. All the things that seem unchangeable are changeable. So we have a lot to talk about in this process of getting to know ourselves, developing empathy for other, and developing the discernment to understand what is more true and more trustworthy in our world. And as we do that, of course, some things will be hard to talk about. Some things will be a lot of fun to talk about. But all of them will help us see the world and ourselves from a new perspective. When we talk about being a cozy robot, what we are talking about is empathetic skepticism, which, wow, what a combination of words that is. Empathetic skepticism. <laughs> I mean, what in the world? would What are we talking about when we say empathetic skepticism. I mean, do those words even go together? It, it almost sounds like we're, we're talking about bouncy concrete. <laughs> like the word bouncy and the word concrete, they don't really seem to go together. I mean, I guess you could bounce something off concrete, but I would never think of concrete itself as having a bounce. It seems like an impossible contradiction, and frankly, it is. But I think in this particular combination when we talk about empathetic skepticism maybe a different combination might come to mind sweet and sour you know the first time i saw a sweet and sour food item on a menu i thought that sounds terrible why would anyone eat something that is sweet and sour why would someone eat someone something sour at all much less something that is sour and sweet And I avoided sweet and sour food items for years of my life. And then the first time I tried some sweet and sour food, I almost couldn't handle how wonderful it was. And so what I'd I'd like us to do together tonight is learn together the ways that empathy and skepticism or empathetic skepticism really do work together. And as we go on that journey, the first thing I'd like to do is thank the people who make this show possible. Uh, we have sponsors that are making this episode tonight possible, and the first of those is BetterHelp.com. And my friends over at BetterHelp have helped over 1.2 million people take charge of their mental health, including each and every member of my family here. Both me and Jenny and Madison and Macy have all used BetterHelp for mental health support. It's the easiest and most convenient way to get mental health support. It connects you with licensed professional counselors who specialize in all the kinds of things we face in life, like trauma, anger, family conflicts, anxiety, relationships, stress, depression, family conflicts, tis the season, right? LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, all of these things and more are covered by licensed professionals working with BetterHelp. You can connect with your counselor via chat or text or calls or video and BetterHelp will help you find that counselor. You know one of the hardest things about therapy is finding someone to work with. And they connect you through their service you go to betterhelpcom Robots. You fill out a questionnaire, and they connect you with a counselor you're going to love. And if it doesn't work out for any reason, they'll connect you to a new counselor at no additional charge. I use BetterHelp every day. And you can get 10% off your first month service by going to betterhelp.com slash cozyrobots. That's betterhelp.com slash cozyrobots. Okay? All right. Our other sponsor this week Uh, is KiwiCo, one of the longest running sponsors of Ask Science Mike. They make hands-on projects for kids and adults of all ages to make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun. That, by the way, is sometimes called STEAM. Each crate, which comes in a line, is designed by experts and tested by kids. In fact, KiwiCo spends over a thousand hours designing and testing each and every crate. Today I came out of my office and went to our kitchen table and my daughter Madison was there, she's a teenager. She was creating a sculpture of a bee that had a a wire supporting frame underneath a a clay body and it was striking. And everything she needed to do that project as always was included in the KiwiCo crate. You never have to make a run to the store for something that's not included. KiwiCo is a wonderful service, especially in this era where families are spending more time at home. You can learn something new every month. So if you'd like to get started with 50% off your first month, go to kiwico.com and use the promo code COZYROBOTS. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com and use use promo code COZYROBOTS and better help and KiwiCo are both wonderful partners for The Cozy Robot Show. Well, if we're going to talk about empathetic skepticism, I suppose we should begin by talking about empathy. There's something I've noticed as I've gotten older and I've paid more attention to my life and the way that people relate to each other. And that's that some of our feelings, the feelings that are normal and natural for us to experience, we don't have a really good relationship with them. Somehow in our culture, we are socialized out of our full emotional palette. This often has really stark lines across socialized gender boundaries. So for people who were told that they were girls as children, they're often socialized against the expression of Anger, for example. While people who are told as children that they are boys, they're often socialized against uh, expressing fear or sadness. I know I was certainly socialized against expressing sadness. Called a cry baby. You're told I cried like a girl, and I want to be really clear here. I had supportive parents. My parents... We're supportive of my feelings. But the larger culture plays a role in what feelings we are allowed or that we perceive that we're allowed to express. And even our parents, when they do our best, I am a parent and I have certainly done this. The micro expressions we make in response to our children's feelings, you know, infants and children have very sensitive brains and they're constantly looking for cues of, what is okay and what's not? Jenna on YouTube, just let me know that they just got another Kiwi co-box today and it's a walking robot. How wonderfully on theme that is. I promise we didn't plan that. <laughs> Although I've done that crate, that's a really fun one. Anyway, so now this this is a problem, the, the way that we are socialized out of certain feelings, right? So if we tell... um. We tell men that they're not allowed to be sad well sadness has a job all of our feelings have jobs to do our feelings tell us about our environment and our relationship to our environment sadness is a feeling that has a job and that job is to tell us that something in our environment is not okay it's not an immediate threat to our survival but it's our body's way of telling us to pay attention. Sadness is a feeling that says, pay attention. In the same way that when we tell women that they're not allowed to be angry, and if they are angry, they're a bitch, then women don't get access to the information that anger is supposed to deliver. And what, what job does anger have? Well, that feeling's job is to let us know when our safety is in question when our boundaries are being pushed. And so as we get in this complex relationship with our own feelings, we have to introduce new feelings and new behaviors to get away from feelings like we we feel like we don't have access to, we have some kind of a dysfunctional relationship with. And when we can't access our own feelings, it makes it hard for us to empathize with feelings of others. So, I have a particularly complicated relationship with anger anger scares me frightens me deeply and so when people have anger even when that anger is legitimate all i can focus on is the fear that i feel in response to their anger and so although i'm a very empathetic person empathy of course being the resonance we feel in response to the feeling of another and it's very different than sympathy when we can't access empathy our behaviors become more centered around ourselves and our feelings and the people sociologists would call our in-group our in-group is those whose uh, sense of belonging allows us to experience social approval. Or excuse me, I got that backwards. The people whose approval allows us to experience social belonging, our in-group. And our in-group applies what? That there is an out-group. Now here's why empathy is really important in the kind of world we're trying to build together. Because anger is a perfectly fine feeling. Anger is a wonderful feeling. I'm learning just how great anger is. We get confused about anger. We think of anger like we think of rage. Rage was this explosive, frightening feeling that often is aggressive and makes other people feel unsafe. But anger doesn't have to be explosive. One could be angry and say, I'm angry or just your face be flushed as you speak. But if someone else has a dysfunctional relationship to their own anger or has experienced trauma in relationship to anger, well, then when someone else experiences anger, you can't hear what they're saying. Well, guess what? There's a lot of justifiable reasons to be angry in our world. Gosh, I am so angry these days. I really am. Well, gosh, Mike, what are you angry about? I posted posted a video over the weekend on Instagram. <clears throat> and it was an angry video. And I'm angry because people are prioritizing their own feelings over our collective health. <clears throat> Excuse me. In response to this pandemic. I'm angry because so many people are dying who don't need to die. And as I look at studies. What's driving the case spread in our country right now is, gosh, it's mainly in-home gatherings. And a lot of those in-home gatherings are affluent white people who have access to good health care. And so if they gather together and they get sick and then they have medical care, they're fine. But remember, when we have a pandemic, you're the most contagious from COVID-19 when you don't know you have it generally, either asymptomatic or you're pre-symptomatic. That's when you're the most contagious. And so you go get groceries or you go run errands or whatever you do. And then someone who's an essential worker contracts COVID-19 and then they get sick or their family members get sick and, and then people die. And I've been very angry about that As I've heard friends and family and randos on the Internet describe why one given trip or one given gathering is indispensable for them. And all I can think of is poor people and people of color who can't go to funerals while their loved ones die. And it makes me angry. I don't know if you've heard the phrase blood boiling. It makes my blood boil. Now. Let's flip that around unless you feel like I'm coming from some state of perceived self-superiority. Gosh, I don't. Because when I first started learning not about America's white supremacist history, which I'd always accept, accepted, but America's white supremacist present times. It was hard for me to learn that. Why? Because when I would hear racial justice advocates describe their life experiences, the things they live in their actual daily lives, I couldn't hear what they were saying. Why? Because they sounded angry. And when they sounded angry, what I felt was fear in response to their anger. Because after all, if someone's angry, they're not being reasonable, right? If someone's angry and I have a complex relationship with anger, I feel a need to distance myself from that person to get away from this frightening anger. And I want to be clear that when I was hearing racial justice advocates describe their experiences and they were angry, their anger wasn't inappropriate. It wasn't violent. It wasn't aggressive. My baggage got in the way. And this is why the empathy part of empathetic skepticism is so important. When we don't have a handle on our own feelings and on our own trauma and our own pain and our own fear, we don't have the space or the energy or the resilience in our lives to show up for other people. We can't hear about their experiences. We have to reflect so much on our own. To be a truly empathetic person means doing some hard work. It means taking ownership for our own feelings and our own mental health. It means learning in our relationships to name our needs, to ask for help and support when we need it, and take an active role in our own personal development. I can't tell you the number of times I've gotten a card or a letter or an email from someone who says, Mike, I'm starting to care about justice, but every time I try to learn by asking an advocate what to do next, they tell me I need to do the work and I don't know what the work is. Friends, the work is learning to foster true empathy by learning to understand and take ownership of our own feelings. Because here is the most remarkable thing. As I did the work in therapy of getting through the trauma related to my understanding of anger. And as I learn to feel anger in my own life, do you know what has happened? I am less afraid of other people's anger. In fact, often I'm not afraid of other people's anger at all. If someone's anger is inappropriate or rage, I can name that that anger is inappropriate and set a boundary. And if it's not, then I can listen to that anger and I can reflect on its validity and I can feel that anger along with the other person. When women tell me about their experiences with widespread sexual assault. I no longer waste time feeling uncomfortable or implicated. I feel angry with them. When I hear about transphobia, how common those experiences are and the difficulty that trans people face in their daily lives, I feel angry. And that anger is good. And you might be the kind of person who also has a complicated relationship with anger or sadness or grief or fear or whatever feeling that you've in some way been socialized against or have trauma related to. And what I'm telling you is that all feelings are important and that all feelings belong And when we learn to accept our feelings, we learn to accept the feelings of other people. And this can get complicated pretty quickly because it's one thing to say for me, a liberal person living in California, that I have empathy with trans people or people of color. It's another thing for me to say that I have empathy with rural Trump voters, (laughs) right? I'll get different social signals from my community expressing those thoughts in different areas. The empathy we express towards other people might be gated socially. And listen to what I'm about to tell you. It's never bad to feel empathy for someone. It's never bad to relate to the emotional motivation, motivation someone has behind a given behavior. No empathy is wrong, and no feelings are wrong ever. There's no such thing as a wrong feeling. Feelings what? Give us information. So to kind of speak to our current moment, do I have empathy towards the anxiety someone living in the rural Midwest may feel today? about their ability to secure a life for themselves and their families. Wow. Yes. Do I have empathy for the cultural collapse that's happening in the rural Southeast? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do I even understand how people who feel left behind By the economic elites in the United States cheerfully cast their vote for Donald Trump to thumb their noses at those elites. Do I have empathy for that? Yes. I even have empathy for the ways that racial resentment develops in human psychology. I have empathy. But that doesn't mean that I approve of all behaviors and beliefs that come from feelings. So while feelings are never wrong, the beliefs that we form in response to our feelings and the actions we take in response to our feelings, now those can be misguided. Those can be maladaptive and those can do harm to other people. Empathy is so missing in our world today. We can understand people and empathize with them without agreeing with them, condoning the things they do. We can empathize people while actively working against what they're trying to do to other people. I don't know if you saw recently Dave Chappelle did a monologue on Saturday Night Live, and my relationship with Dave Chappelle is quite complicated. I think Dave Chappelle is brilliant and witty, and I think that some of his humor is needlessly abrasive. And I'm not the kind of person who thinks anything goes in comedy. I think just because people giggle if you say something transphobic or homophobic, that doesn't mean you should. I think discretion is important in the things we say in the world. So I don't want to have somebody hear me saying, I've watched this monologue and thinking I agree with everything Dave Chappelle says because I want to make sure my queer friends know I stand in absolute solidarity with you. But in Dave Chappelle's monologue, when he, a black man, talked about the behaviors of white people, behaviors that directly affected him and people he loves, in terrible ways, he spoke with tremendous empathy and understanding. It actually moved me to tears. If you haven't seen the monologue, I would recommend watching that one. There will be some shocking moments. It's Dave Chappelle, but the empathy displayed there, the understanding without condoning and without approval, I thought offered us a map of how we can move in the world. Nicole on YouTube says, when is it empathy or pity? I'm not sure how I can empathize with Trump supporters when there's so much factual and scientific evidence against supporting him according to their morals. Yeah, pity's easy. Pity's easy. When I pity someone, I stand over them. If I pity you, I'm better than you. When I empathize with you, I recognize our shared humanity and the true equality we share as people. And this is, this is tough stuff. I think Donald Trump was an incredibly dangerous president. I think he did untold harm to our society and the most vulnerable and marginalized people within it i'm not sure for the rest of my life i will be able to think without gritting my teeth of what happened at the border and of those children separated from their families but i don't pity trump voters sometimes i pity donald trump but i'm working on that i have empathy with trump voters i really do and i'm not saying you have to. I'm telling you the journey I've been on and why I believe we should at least strive for empathy as much as we can while still supporting our own mental health. Because what I'm not calling you to do is swallow down your own feelings. What I'm not calling you to do is to dismiss someone who has abused you or abused people you care about. I am not calling you to any of those things when I say, let's access empathy. I will continue to denounce in the most stringent terms the actions that this administration have taken, and I want to see people held to account for what has happened these last four years including people who voted for Donald Trump. And I understand the psychological and emotional processes that led to that vote. And here's one more thing on empathy. Here's why I'm an empathetic person. Because I have no illusion of superiority over anyone. Guess what? There's a lot better people than me in the world. <laughs> you know? I have so many friends who've been fighting the good fight for racial justice for decades, decades, often out of necessity because they are from some racially marginalized group or ethnicity. If you roll the clock back, what, 10 years, then I would have said that, like, the civil rights movement led by the brilliant Dr. Martin Luther King got rid of racism before I was born. And when I would hear in the media or in my life a person of color talking about racial access barriers in the United States, I would have thought that they were falling for some kind of manipulation by the Democratic Party, because yeah, I used to be a Republican. I used to preach sermons on why we should love the sinner and hate the sin. I've said that kind of crap in pulpits. So when I have empathy for Trump voters or white evangelicals or many of these groups which hurt so many people is because I have to believe that they can change because I did. And the only reason I was able to change is because someone was empathetic for me. Do you know what led to me becoming affirming of all sexual orientations, and gender identities, a patient and empathetic conversation with a gay man. That's how it all started for me. It was empathy that helped me start to open my eyes and see one of the most profound things a person can see. And what is that? I saw that I was wrong. Empathy over and over and over and over for the last eight years has shown me that I am wrong. Wrong about my attitudes towards LGBTQ people. Wrong in my belief that white supremacy is a vanquished enemy in American society, wrong that men and women are both equal and treated as such, wrong that the Americans with Disabilities Act secured (laughs) access to everything in society for disabled people. Empathy has led me to those insights and not just my empathy but the empathy that someone else had for me. Now, empathy is one half of empathetic skepticism, and we are 38 minutes into our program. (laughs) So I suppose I should talk a little bit about skepticism as well. And skepticism, I think, is a wildly, wildly undervalued tool and I think that's because skeptics tend to be assholes. <laughs> I just, they really do. You know, um, I grew up as an evangelical Christian, and then I had a faith transition, and I, uh, I became an atheist. And the first thing I noticed was how smug skeptical communities tend to be. They just really can be smug. They tend to be very white. They tend to be very male. They tend to be very smug. Now, that the white male part is getting better, and there are certainly some wonderful, open-minded, kind skeptics out there. But often skepticism gets conflated with just kind of acting like you're smarter than everyone else. But skepticism is a vital, vital tool right now. And we have to be careful when we talk about skepticism because it is good to question everything. Listen to me. It is good to question everything. I would love to hear you question me. Check, fact check everything I say. Do your own research. But when I say we should be skeptical and question everything, the very terms question everything and do your own research have been co-opted by some of the least skeptical movements in human society. Conspiracy theorists and QAnon tell you to question everything. And they tell you to do your own research, but by do your own research, they mean watch our whacked out YouTube videos. (laughs) So how do we question everything well? Because our empathy and our intuition are really good at discerning The motivations of other people we are very good as a species at understanding what other people are thinking and feeling and why they're doing things but our intuitive intelligence is pretty bad at discerning what is factual about material reality and we're living at this strange intersection of time where major cultural institutions are really incentivized to offer us misinformation or at the very least Deeply biased information. What cultural institutions? Well, politicians, our political leaders do better if we are polarized, if we are energized voting blocks that will come out and hit that side of the ballot no matter what. Media companies are incentivized to have us watch and click and tap more and more and more and more. And so they have an incentive to give us things that are emotionally outrageous and sensational. So we will pay more attention and make them more money. And this feedback loop between cultural institutions that are elite, like the political ruling class or media companies, them following their own self-interests has led us to a place where we are having trouble agreeing on a basic set of shared facts that describe the world. And this is really hurting our capacity to create a functioning society, much less an equitable society. When we question everything, We should look for the markers of am I questioning everything well or am I using the phrase question everything as a way to get away from the accountability of the agency of using my intelligence? Some pretty good rules of thumb. If your skepticism has you looking for errors or oversights or misunderstandings, of a fundamental set of data, that's really good skepticism. Everyone makes mistakes. If your skepticism is asking, what is in this for the person who's sharing this with me? That's good skepticism. Looking for incentives is essential in skepticism. Understanding biases is essential, especially our own. Our own biases are the hardest to see. It's a quirk of human cognition. If our skepticism, if our questioning leads us to believe that experts are involved in an intentional conspiracy to mislead us, that should be a red flag. That should be a red flag. Now notice I said experts. Experts. The kind of people who specialize in learning a particular field, they tend to be devoted to doing a good job. Now, they will have bias. They will make mistakes. But they don't conspire together to deceive us, or at least not very often. Now, certainly, wow, we have a lot of organizing political elites (laughs) uh, deceiving us on purpose. That's definitely going on. But what I mean is, if your questioning of everything makes you question, are NASA scientists working together to cover up a conspiracy that the world is actually flat and not roughly spherical? Okay, now our skepticism has gone too far. (laughs) We've gone from being a skeptic to being unskeptical, frankly. Right, so we kind of have, when we talk about questioning everything, it's 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 okay occasionally to have a I guess what I call an existential uh, tailspin, that a total questioning of what is real. Every I have those periodically, <laughs> but we don't want to go down the rabbit hole of using skepticism as an excuse to not believe verifiable things, right? Like the fact that the Earth is spherical so i give you that warning we should be skeptical a lot of us aren't skeptical at all right i think the problem one is people aren't skeptical at all problem two is increasingly people then go from well i'm not skeptical to i'm absolutely skeptical and now i have you know a social motivation for participating in a conspiracy theory that that's not skepticism for our world to be healthy, for us to make it through COVID, for us to make it through climate change, for us to handle globalization and the kind of wealth gaps we're seeing, the way that poverty could begin to rise again globally as the climate changes, we are headed for potentially very difficult days ahead. We need empathy and we need skepticism. Empathy by itself can be overwhelming. Has anyone here experienced compassion fatigue before, where you have felt so much empathy for so long that you just feel like you can't function anymore? Empathy alone can be overwhelming, but skepticism alone can be cold and dispassionate. And wisdom in our lives comes from bringing our empathetic intuition and our skeptical cognition and bringing them together. When we think about the brain, we have a left-right division where the left part of our brain is reductive and the right part of the brain is holistic, right? When these hemispheres work together in concert, that's humanity at its best. In the same way, we have a top-bottom division in our brain, right? When we think about the way that things happen, bottom-up starts more uh, intuitive, more emotional, more survival, and moves towards the more cognitive outer layer of the brain. Other ways of thinking and knowing start at cognition and move down. and It is when we balance left and right and top and bottom, and indeed, we even talk about the front and back axis of the brain. When we pull those things together, we unlock the true wisdom of the human being, the human person. When we embrace, truly embrace, empathetic skepticism, what do we find? Hard conversations are easier because we understand our feelings, we empathize with the feelings of others, and we can set boundaries and conversations and relationships as necessary to guard our own mental health. When we embrace, Empathetic skepticism, we care about the world and everyone in it, and we can organize to make things better for everyone. Because let me tell you something, I am not okay with the racialized implications of the criminal justice system in the United States, the country I live in, and I am also not okay with increasing levels of poverty among white working class people in the Midwest. And because I have empathetic skepticism, I refuse to allow any corporation or any political party to tell me we can't work on both of those things. Our intuition is informed by facts and our facts are informed by our intuition when we embrace empathetic skepticism. My friend Andre Henry taught me the 3.5% rule that it takes a lot fewer people than you'd think to drive a change in culture. 3.5% people in any society all in can change things for the better and forever. So we don't need to get 100% of the world to embrace empathetic skepticism. If we hit 3.5% in any given population, that is enough to make a difference. Okay, we're gonna take some questions uh, from you. So uh, I've seen the chat, it's been really busy. There's been a lot of questions coming in, so I think we'll have a few minutes to go over some things together. Uh, This first one uh, is from uh, Joseph McCormick, who says, Can you talk about the possibility for empathy slash empathetic skepticism between people who have grown up in secular community and are non-religious with those who are deeply religious? Joseph, what a wonderful question. Uh, for once, I actually feel pretty qualified to answer this one as someone who grew up in deeply religious community and then developed uh, into a more secular and non-religious context before putting both of them in a blender <laughs> to be where I am now. Um, I'm just going to plug my, own, my first book for a second. Uh, my first book is called Finding God in the Waves, and that is— A book is about this dynamic. Uh, It's still a bestseller after all these years. It came out in 2016, but I wrote that book to help secular people understand religious people and religious people understand secular people. Um, And do I think there's a possibility for empathetic skepticism between those groups? Absolutely. You know, I think secular and non-religious folks need to understand something Religion plays a profound role in the development of human psychology, and religion can have tremendous benefits for people who practice religion. Now, I don't need to tell secularist and non-religious people that religious belief can easily be co-opted into authoritarianism, that it can be used to... um, manipulate people into having a fragmented at best understanding of factual reality i'm not saying religion is without fault but i'm saying the benefits to religion can be profound and you don't have to be religious and i wouldn't encourage you to become religious but when you understand how profoundly beneficial religion is to the adherence of that religion then you're going to empathize with why people are religious Now, for people who are deeply religious, this street goes two ways. You know, one thing that's really common in deeply religious spaces? Moralizing. A belief that there's some kind of moral superiority to lifestyle and practice. And there's a really funny thing when we look at the data. Skeptics and secular people are often more moral by the metrics religious people use to define morality than religious people themselves. Secularists tend to have what? Lower divorce rates, lower rates of depression. Their children tend to, uh, teens, teen, teens from secular's home tend to have teen pregnancy less often. Their rates of sexually transmitted infections tend to be lower. So deeply religious people, need to also have empathetic skepticism towards secular communities and understand that these are good, decent, moral people living good lives. So no matter what epistemological implications our faith or non-faith traditions have, we should understand that we have more opportunity learning from each other than we do pointing fingers about who is right or wrong about the existence of God, which I don't know if you've noticed this. It doesn't seem like any two people agree on who God is in the first place. So, you know, I don't know. That one's really tough. But gosh, what a great question, Joseph. Thank you. Next one comes from Taylor. And Taylor says, do you have a favorite conspiracy theory, Mike? Gosh, a favorite conspiracy theory they all drive me so bonkers <laughs> that it's, it's hard to think of them in a a non-frustrating manner um i do think the knots that flat earth conspiracy theorists get themselves in to scientifically justify a flat earth is are are, are really really <laughs> wonderful um I think about the kinds of elaborate experiments they've done that disprove their own theories. And uh, perhaps it's a bit of schadenfreude, but I do really enjoy, <laughs> like, like really enjoy those moments. Uh, okay. Got a question here. Uh, I guess it came in from email from Paul, who says, uh, Cancel culture is incredibly common, even though the term is new. This question isn't about the culture itself, but about the work of those who are canceled. Take JK Rowling, for instance, who has lately been saying controversial things about transgender individuals Does someone's bad stance on an issue mean we should negate all their work. How about someone's bad behavior? Where do you draw the separation between person and work between work and opinion? What a great question, Paul. Um, Tracy, uh, I can't cite those statistics where I got them. They are in the footnotes of my first book, though, uh, about uh, the disparities between religious and non-religious teen pregnancies. Uh, for, and that's a good point. That datum is not current. That is several years old. That's a canned answer. Um, you know, I used to think we should separate the art from the artist. Um An artists should face consequences for what they say, but it shouldn't reflect into their art. And then I watched a stand-up comedy special called Nanette by Hannah Gatsby. And Hannah Gatsby, who is brilliant and an art historian, uh, went through the history of art in a very, very powerful way, and showed the visual representation of women in art and the way that had been linked with actual violence against real human women in the lives of those artists. And after watching the net with tears in my eyes, I walked around my home and I took down art because I couldn't look at it anymore when I heard the story of how a given artist had treated a real human person. I love the Harry Potter series, and I don't know that J.K. Rowling has been canceled. She is one of the most wealthy and powerful authors alive. But as much as I love Harry and Ron and especially Hermione, as much as I love watching them take on corrupt bureaucrats and dark wizards alike. I can't look at that work the same way anymore. Because I know too many trans people who found comfort in those pages and for whom that comfort has been taken away by the words of the artist long after the art is done. I don't know if I'm right, I just know I'm empathetic and uh yeah, I can't read those books anymore. Not when I think about the difficulty the pain and the struggle that trans people face, not only to fit in with our society, but to fit in with their bodies. Gender dysphoria is very difficult. And the gender confirmation surgeries, top and bottom alike, are excruciatingly painful. And for people to work so hard to find comfort in their life and in society. And then to be attacked by one of my heroes. Well, that hero can be my hero no more. And those books can no longer be my favorites. (music) Thank you so much for being a part of our show today. Don't forget, you can like and subscribe uh, on YouTube and on Twitch if you'd like to watch live. Those are the best two platforms to join us. You can follow and like on any and all social channels. And don't forget our patrons, the Cozy Robots. You can join us there by going to CozyRobots.com. This show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. So I'd like to thank each and every Cozy Robot for making this show possible. I'd like to thank our producers, Victory Palmisano, Tanner Hearn and Greg Nordeen. I'd like to thank the people who wrote and recorded the show's music, Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg, my daughters. Production support was provided by Andrew Galucky. Our social media manager is Grace Vaughn. Production support and assistant to Mike is Caitlin Hermstad, designed by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design by Landon Setterfield. Set design by Jesse Lane Interiors. Wardrobe stylist and craft services, Jenny McCarg. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, friends. And my fellow cozy robots and empathetic skeptics, I can't wait to see you again next week. Take care, friends. The Cozy Robot Show.